0: Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in with my, I'm here rather, in the coffee bar, which is 600 Spring Street, downtown LA, with my new friend, we've only just met personally, but colleague for some time now, and one of my editors, Rob DeShane. Rob, how are you? Just fine, thanks.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you very much yeah. for agreeing to come here, and you've
1: just come from teaching a class, I think. I have. Yeah? What was it about? This was a—it's uh, a liberal studies class, and it's cultural studies theory. So, it's an—it's a low—it's an upper division, but it's not an advanced upper division. Sort of a gateway to a lot of the subjects and topics and theories that we're interested in. Now, for listeners who are outside
0: the U.S. and about—thank you so much.
1: Thank you much.
0: No problem. I'm, I'm easy as the saying goes. About 50% of listeners are outside the U.S., where liberal studies is a little mysterious often. Can you explain what
1: that means in in our context? Well, in a lot of uh, university contexts, it comes to mean library studies, which is a glorified way of thinking about how to do good library research. But that's not true of every university campus. And Ours was one where about 10 years ago we had a pretty complete curricular... An epistemological makeover in our department. So we had a bunch of folks who, you know, were sort of like Gen 1 or Gen 1.5 liberal studies folks that commandeered the department and recurricularized recur- really? it. And I was one of those that was lucky to be on that ground that did that. And the place that
0: Rob's talking about is California State University Los Angeles, which amazingly is really the only downtown university in this city. I guess University of Sport Children is almost downtown, but not quite. But it's, you're very close to downtown anyway. Well,
1: we're the real downtown. You're the real downtown. Right. And clearly the demographic is much more urban on our campus than yeah. it is in the other downtown, the University yeah. of Spoiled Children's. So. And you're almost Los Feliz, aren't you? Uh, well, Los Feliz would be a little bit more west than us. A little bit further It's really East LA. It sort of borders Alhambra, El Monte, and some of the inner cities, right. quote unquote.
0: So in terms of that geographical location is that relevant a to the student body and b
1: to what liberal studies means in this transformation that you've been part of well so the the, the answer to the first part of the question is very relevant uh, in fact i think i don't i haven't checked the latest demographic but it's about 65% latino latina The student population, as I remember, with a sort of smattering cross section of everybody else. Right. So, in terms of the campus community, it's definitely urban in every way.
0: And it really is East LA. It really is East LA. And
1: your second uh, question, which was about the, the curriculum, the liberal studies curriculum, you know, I think one of the things that the faculty in my department have been really attuned to is making sure that we're engaging the students in the way that they would like to engage us. And it's really also part of the choice that I had when I was thinking about where I wanted to work. I wanted to work somewhere where the students were ground level, so it wasn't a bunch of theoretical mumbo-jumbo on boards that we would be talking about. It was real life, everyday life, both for myself and for the students, so I would say absolutely it has a huge bearing on on what liberal studies is for us. And.
0: Your appointment, as I understand it, is split between liberal studies and communication studies, is that right? That's
1: right. My my undergraduate and master's degrees are in communication studies and with a focus on rhetoric specifically, so I really came to liberal studies and cultural studies. I, well, I would say I'm an expatriate of communication studies, even though I'm there still, and I'm still interested in so questions both that e- we
0: have. an expatriate and an expatriate, perhaps, yeah. you know, who knows? Well, but. Yeah,
1: maybe an expatriate.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, you did your PhD, I think, in cultural studies, one of the few people really in the world, I think, there aren't that many who actually have a doctorate in cultural studies.
1: Well, if, you, if, you, if by that you mean that the program has to be called cultural studies, I'd say that's true. But certainly on the West Coast, there weren't a lot of programs when I was going to school, which was in the mid to late 1990s, that had a cultural studies interest and focus and faculty that actually knew what the term even meant. And, then,
0: and you'd, you'd come up through having done your undergrad and master's at, in the Cal State system, the California State University system. That's right. And then you did your doctorate at Claremont
1: Graduate School. Claremont Graduate School, now called yeah. Claremont Graduate University. Right. Which, which actually wasn't where I started. When I came out of my master's program, I uh, first started in a communication PhD at Northwestern University. And in Evanston? In Evanston, Illinois. Which is
0: just uh, a snooty suburb of Chicago, but a very beautiful part
1: of the world. Absolutely beautiful. And you know, it was, uh, was a choice that I made and a choice that my faculty helped me to make as well. They thought that I should have the best rhetorical studies education that money can buy. <laughs> so I plodded off to, to Northwestern, and it was clear to me after five or six months that it wasn't the program for me. It was much more conservative than I had imagined that it would be. And even though there were some fairly you know, good scholars there at the time, Dilip Gonkar was there, uh, Dwight Conquer Good, the late Dwight Conquer Good was there. Still, overall, it, it wasn't the right fit for me. There's
0: a lot of good old boys.
1: A lot of good old boys, some of them now deceased, but I wouldn't say that my, my time was wasted there either. I had a really important seminar in, in the public sphere from Tom Goodnight, who teaches at the University of Spoiled Children now, um, that really had an influence on the way that I think about culture and society. Mm. So, well, that's good, but it's also good that you knew when to get out. I. I the timing was propitious, and then I beat it back to the West Coast, where the weather's so much fairer. And <laughs> as luck would have it, there was a cultural studies program in my backyard. So nice. You know. And were you already a faculty member at this time? I was uh, doing the freeway flyer thing, adjuncting at a number of different universities in the same time. Freeway professor, not settled in any way.
0: Yeah. Of right. And when you got to Claremont, what did you find? What was the, uh, the appeal, the attraction and so on? Because uh, in the last couple of years, I've come to know one or two people there and I think it's terrific, but I'm interested in what it's like from the inside.
1: Well, I think in the last 10 or 12 years, it's actually changed a lot and the faculty as is, is well turned over. You have some people that are, uh, like Henry Cripps now, that's, that's directing, I think, the programme that wasn't there when I was there. It was made up of a bunch of faculty from different departments who came together as sort of a steering committee kind of organizational structure. So I had a historian that was my dissertation director and a literary theorist that was on my dissertation committee. And um, I think what attracted me was the interdisciplinarity of that, that I could sort of hunt and peck according to my interests. I was very free to design my own program there according to my interests and my needs. Uh, the Claremont, I should say Claremont Graduate School is part of a consortium of liberal arts colleges. All the others are undergraduate, but they have, in some cases, fabulous faculty, and I was able in my program to take classes where, where you wanted. Yeah,
0: the extraordinary wanted. thing about this is that there's a very beautiful uh, Pasadena-like or 19th century wealthy white person's enclave, uh-huh. in a sense, part of the way between Los Angeles and Palm Springs called Claremont. Yes. Which has these very fancy little liberal arts private schools, some of which have lots of money, huge endowments, some of which Scripps have
1: college Pomona college, the others have almost nothing,
0: and so there 's constant controversy when they come together as this Claremont Graduate Universities, I understand it, as to who will fund graduate students and so on, where the money comes from, how you allocate the faculty. I think
1: you're right about that, in fact, I think, you know, the idea of having a consortium seems to be very important to this group rhetorically, but it's true that there's a lot of infighting and there's a lot of unease, and you can actually hear a little bit of the sniveling in the meetings. <laughs> I, I was a part-time professor there for a while in the Cultural Studies program after I got my degree and so was. Privy to some of that in ways that I had never expected, you know, because when you're a student, you are in some ways immune to a lot of those politics.
0: It's true, yeah. isn't it? Although there are times, some on occasions, I think, when graduate students become proxies for the struggles that are real or perceived amongst the faculty and can incarnate or index differences of opinion within the professoriate that they are either actually identify or fantasmatically or fantastically identify. Absolutely.
1: And in fact now that you're saying that uh, I'm remembering a bit of an insurrection that the students mounted while I was in the program over money and over faculty. We felt that we should have more support from the administration and faculty and actually had a walkout we demanded meetings with the administrators, which they agreed to, and we're able to make some small changes. Well, not even small changes. We we're able to get a couple of extra faculty hires in the program, and it was rather surprising the power that we found that we had. That's marvelous.
0: Okay, so. Moving on to contemporary research things, and we might stagger back into questions of rhetoric uh, later on if that's okay. Sure. What are you working on right now? I know one thing you're working on right now, but...
1: Right. which you're a big part of, actually. <laughs> um, so, um, without the background, I'll just say that one of the through lines of my research for a long time has been humanitarianism and especially organizations that proclaim to be guided by humanitarian values, whatever that term comes to me. And um, recently that's read me to try to understand the confluence of humanitarianism as an ideology or a discourse and corporate business, you know, commerce, the world of commerce. And it's my belief that what I think we're experiencing now is sort of a confluence, you might call it a doxa, of humanitarianism and the language of business that's having a profound impact on the way that we understand the world around us. And of course it represents the ever incursion you know the incursion of business culture in human culture as well and i'm really interested in that project so this is untangle that
0: corporate social responsibility exactly so there are sometimes by different names sometimes what seemed to be a dominant term about five or six years ago and it seems to be
1: perhaps losing its purchase for some reason well it may be and it may just be that it's morphing Uh, So now, more often than corporate social responsibility, you'll hear the term global corporate citizenship. And so now you have citizenship links on almost every major corporation's website. So I'm not convinced that it's receding so much as it's just the rhetoric is shifting.
0: Yes. No, I just meant that the the concept, I think, is strengthening and proliferating. But just that the, the language has changed slightly and it's interesting the introduction of this word citizenship it's a further element to personify and humanize corporations something that we in a sense pioneered sadly in this country
1: with the the citizenship or with the corporation as a personal Yeah, absolutely so i think that's really seeped deeply into the public and it's making me think that maybe the reason that we're not hearing corporate social responsibility so much these days in the public sphere is because it's become so much of a backdrop of our lives. Mm. The corporate culture is Mm. culture in many ways now. So what are some of these
0: organizations that you've been investigating?
1: Well, in the book that I wrote, which was called Global Humanitarianism, which came out of my dissertation work, I specifically did case studies of doctors without borders, médecins sans frontières in the international term. And also an umbrella organization called the International Campaign to Ban Landmines, which is really made up of of, of smaller interest groups, NGOs, and nonprofits that were working together to mount an anti-personnel landmine ban. This was the famous international movement that Princess Diana was a spokesperson for in the 1990s. Since then, I've studied um, Starbucks, um, and specifically Ethos Water was a case study that I recently wrote about. Um, but I'm, I'm still sort of trying to gather research and trying to understand the larger discourse of social responsibility. How um, how different kinds and different strata of corporate
0: right, culture. Right. And it's, it's interesting you're looking here both at the supposedly pristine, beautiful world of the non-government organization right. and the supposedly wicked world of the corporation. Right, it's very Manichaean. When I first heard about Médecins Sans Frontières, I thought of it as, in fact, a marvelous institution that was entirely to be supported. I've not had much personal interaction with it, but those who have see it rather
1: differently. What's your take? Well, I think the public persona of the, the Médecins Sans Frontières volunteer is uh, somebody who's completely altruistic, driven by humanitarian concerns selfless giving of themselves willing to sacrifice even perhaps a career for a time in order to help others But when you actually interview people that are volunteers Which are comprised of doctors and logisticians and other people you find that a lot of them are actually thrill-seekers who are looking for escape for escape from the home drum Everyday, you know boredom of their lives. They're adrenaline junkies in a lot of cases and specifically seek out missions where it's dangerous that was something that I found striking and interesting. In my, I had never expected to find that um, when I was thinking of the humanitarian actors, which they profess to be.
0: Right. Was there a contradiction, do you think, in terms of their actual conduct, given that they had this motivation?
1: Well, um, most of my understanding is anecdotal, but I have it on good authority from, a, from informants that most of which I wasn't able to use in the book that they had really very little regard for local culture. And so a lot of times, volunteers would go in and make a ruckus at the bars and sometimes get kicked out and not really give much of a damn about the people, the right. population for whom they, you know, imputedly are serving. So. Uh, they sound
0: like the mythic uh, white aid worker <laughs> yeah, in the global south in certain huh? ways. Yeah,
1: yeah and, and so they come back with narratives very sort of traditional narratives of victims and heroes and, you know, and they're heroified, but it's also an act of self-realification, I think. And when you say you couldn't use most of that in the book, why so? Well, I was very naive as an interviewer and uh, just, I guess, assumed that I would be able to use all of the information that I wanted to use, and it wasn't about names. I, I asked my informants if I could just simply change their name And most of them that gave me the juicy information said that people within the organization would still know who they were because of the stories they told me. And I agreed to, frankly, had to reluctantly agree to not talk too much about that.
0: Well, that is a huge problem when you're talking about reasonably small organizations. I mean, it's global, but. Nevertheless, in terms of the places and conflicts you 're investigating and the time you're, you're doing it in not so difficult to identify who the people are right. I remember though I think it was the Washington Post it might have been the New York Times I think it was the post during the Carter administration you might, re- re- might recall this not you won 't even have been born then but you may re- have seen the Thank picture you for later that, on by the way the wonderful moment when there was a headline about a leak about U.S. foreign policy. At the time when there was a big debate between Cy Vance and Speak Brzezinski within the Carter administration, Vance as the Secretary of State and Brzezinski as the National Security Advisor, <laughs> there was a banner headline and then a photograph of Vance. And the story was all about leaks from the State Department. And instead of saying, Cyrus Vance, under his name, it said, a well-placed source in the State Department. <laughs> <laughs> Who was, of course, routinely quoted right? throughout
1: the piece. Absolutely. I mean, there's fantastic. some kind of celebrity sometimes that's attached to that title, right?
0: <laughs>
1: a highly-placed in- source. An insider.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there were some things you couldn't write about.
1: Um, do you, when you said you were a bit naive, do you think with greater experience you'd approach that whole thing differently now? I would and actually there's been a lot written about humanitarian organizations. Um, generally that that was really new ground that I felt like I was treading. <clears throat> I had to um, do a lot of reading in international studies, and it wasn't exactly the information that I was interested in. It was more getting a feel for the discourse of humanitarianism as it yeah. becomes funneled through different you know, angles, disciplinary perspectives, and so on. Yeah. Um, so that my naivete came from having feeling like I had to master, so to speak, an entire discourse. Um, and so undoubtedly today I have more more information at my disposal. In fact, I noticed that humanitarian subjects are working their way into cultural studies finally in a big way that they weren't even five years ago. So now, recently, there's been a special issue of communication and critical cultural studies, I think, dedicated to humanitarian discourse. I'm really pleased. I think that's a a promising thing. Sure.
0: And, of course, some of the way that we in cultural studies fetishize civil society because we're frightened of big things, big corporations, big states,
1: and we're still stuck in the logic of dualism so much. And still
0: right? stuck in, in a, as you say, a manichean logic. Is about thinking through the third sector in all its promises and potential potentialities as well as its problems. Uh, it's also quite a US thing, uh, although I find in Latin America, in particular. Uh, a great deal of sympathy on the left for the civil society fetish or model, whatever we choose to call it, Mm -hmm. simply because they're sick of the soldier on horseback model of dictatorship, uh, whether it be from the left or the right. And a lot of them have come through their own political formations articulated to Maoism or Trotskyism, and are very worried about what they see as authoritarian statist tendencies. Mm
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's an ethnocentric kind of a slant to that as well, obviously. Well, they can
0: be, absolutely. You know, like the aid worker coming in to help out.
1: And frankly, I think that, um, you know, it's the conceit of Western culture, and especially as it manifests in the United States, to think through a very specific and sort of narrow set of understandings of what... Insurrection can be what authoritarianism right. is, even in course,
0: but, it, but it can also be very helpful and can make a lot of sense to people who have lived through real statism. And I guess the other thing I think about is that in some almost inchoate way, the anti-statism opposition to government that we see as very popular here in the U.S. is not irrational, because the United States is an empire... And it has a labor aristocracy, but it's not a very big labor aristocracy anymore that benefits from it. And it does tyrannize and terrorize ordinary people. For sure. In lots of ways. You know, and why shouldn't they be dubious about big liberalism? Uh, Yeah. It's not as though well the welfare state helps them, it helps the middle class in many
1: cases, if it helps any. That's right, which is interesting because doesn't it contradict the predominant rhetoric of the disappearing middle class in this country? Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. So um, that book came out when? That was 2005. And um, it's available, I think, as an e-book, is that right? I think so. Yeah. I think it is now. Um, and the reason I think I know that is that that's how I found it in order to make one of the illustrations to oh, okay. be a picture for this
1: interview, mm-hmm. this conversation. I tell my students that if they can't afford the book, just Google it and there'll be some missing pages and they can get the read <laughs> for free, you know.
0: Submissing or submissive. That's right. But in any event, there it is. And your that, it seems to me, is the kind of topic that never goes away from someone's career. I think you'll be looking at that the rest of your research days.
1: I'm sure. I, I think that that was really the kernel that wanted, that made me want to be an academic in the end. There was, was always a thread of social justice that still continues to run through my work right. in one way or another.
0: And did that arise, if, if you don't mind my getting a little bit personal, from your own background? Where did that come from? I'm always interested in how anybody growing up in the United States it actually be really on no, the left. Actually,
1: I came from a middle-class family, uh, and uh, I think more was a self-reflection that didn't happen until late in my life, where I tried to understand my own prejudices and biases and uh tried to come to grips with that in a very self-reflexive way um, that also in no small part happened when I started adjunct teaching at places like Cal State Los Angeles with sort of an urban student population, um, so, so your students made you reflect on
0: your privilege Very much so. and your views and, and biases. That's and right.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I also I think just some of it came from my interest in punk rock music. I was a punker when I was a kid, and uh, so my, my master's thesis was, was about uh, sort of a, I guess it's a subfield within punk rock at the time, pure core music which was sort of a confluence of then-new liberatory queer politics and punk aesthetic. And so there was the whole sort of subtext of subversion and resistance that ended up, you know, coming together with more social justice-oriented issues. Interesting. So
0: it is, in a sense, the classic German philosophical goal, very important for humanistic Marxism, of making your own life an object of inquiry and interrogation.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think... uh, You know, obviously it didn't come so much from me as from other people, and people I was reading. I was interested in the the critical pedagogy discourse that was really coming out of Paulo Freire and some of the early uh, theorists, Marxist-influenced ideas that really sort of helped me on that road to self-reflection. Yeah. Very very interesting.
0: So, um, and you mentioned Starbucks,
1: the S word. right? Tell us a little bit about your work on Starbucks. So I wasn't really even interested in it until the 1999 World Trade Organization protests, where it became an object of protest, and uh, sort of it became this this site of epistemic and also physical violence. So you had rocks thrown through the window, but it was also very much a symbol of the whole problem that the protesters were were trying to identify and articulate. Yeah. So, um, you know, it began for me just as sort of a symbol of corporate bloat, but then also as reactive politics as well. Because one thing I noticed, and it seemed to be a decisive change after 1999, after the WTO protests was that Starbucks became very interested in this idea of social responsibility, surprise. And um, that's when they started to, you know, they sort of changed internally changed the corporate structure. They started referring to their Uh, their employees as partners. (laughs) They had a corporate social responsibility director that they appointed and paid big money to. Um, And I found that that shift really interesting the way that you know most people you know, most of the ways that we think about corporate social responsibilities that corporations are voluntarily because of their innate altruism wanting to become of the become part of the community but it's really a response of a reactive discourse
0: yes yeah. and um, for those who may be too young or too distant to know this the meetings that Rob's referring to were in Seattle or Pacific Northwest of the U S crucial a place for Starbucks, yes. kind of et origo for it, and also a place where its corporate thirst managed to suck dry... Uh, and continues to, yeah, continues to suck dry large numbers of small businesses like the one that we're in now, independent right. coffee houses. Right.
1: To the point where sometimes you can't even tell if you're in a Starbucks or not. One of the recent campaigns in the last couple of years mounted by Starbucks was, to commandeer coffee houses with no Starbucks insignia anywhere. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, this is a new thing. I didn't know that. Right, so uh, they're still owned by Starbucks, but you wouldn't know unless you asked one of the employees. Yeah,
0: well, so maybe we are. Oh, God, I hope not. (laughs) I doubt it. Let's ask them if they're partners. Anyhow... So that's very, very interesting. And also, I think it's an interesting confluence in that you mention the impulse towards CSR, or corporate social responsibility, deriving from the WTO. Of course, the next year, 2000, the millennial goals of the United Nations were announced, or at least supposedly begin implementation. Kofi Annan is the Secretary General of the UN at that time, and he's big on corporate social responsibility at that moment, isn't he?
1: Yes, and I I was interested in Annan Uh, in my graduate work and also in the book as well. He's a Manikian, I never imagined that of him, but if you read anything by him or have listened to his speeches, he he, he is really clear about framing things in black and white. And that fascinated me about a man who professes diversity and difference and the interest in, you know, a lot of the the foundations of the millennial goals had to do with diversity and understanding of other people not like yourself and so on and so. I found the tension in Anand as the, as the director at that time. So he's actually
0: quite binaristic in his quite binaristic, discourse. Quite yeah. I've only read a couple of his speeches, but I guess I should go back. A really interesting figure. I liked him, if not least because the Republican Party in the United States had such an intense loathing for him. I mean,
1: extremely. Yeah, beyond anything. We wouldn't send representatives to any of the UN meetings, or if we did, they would often walk out over trivial matters. Sort of a symbolic gesture, and also don't an attempt have to play by the rules an attempt to get him in particular,
0: in particular. And you know, we now know that yes, his son was it seems corrupt, but there were lots of other things that he did that was simply about trying to run the administration efficiently and effectively that they sought actively to undermine and they really did persecute him. Um, right, quite fascinating. One of his major nemeses, John Bolton, um, a man whom I once sat next to in an airport lounge. I'm so sorry. Well, I tried to enter his mind like Robert Byrd of the South Pole and kill him with bad thoughts. I failed. I noticed that... In endeavouring, you know, he's still considering a presidential run.
1: Yes. In endeavoring, and I notice that his rhetoric is mellowed quite a bit as well. Well, except you saw
0: what he came out with this week or so, which no. is talking about the so-called targeted assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists uh-huh. that the Obama administration won't admit it is either doing or sanctioning. He called those half measures at best. Oh, great. So, you know, he remains as he was. That's right. Sensationally depicted, I thought, in one of the James Bond movies. <laughs> in a very overt way. One of the Daniel Craig movies. In any event, uh, so Starbucks, Google, very keen on this notion of being good neighbors, good participants, good citizens. global citizens. Now we've been very sceptical, I'm perhaps being cynical and sardonic about this but it is better than just going after dollars, isn't it? Or are you dubious about that? Say that again. We're sounding, or at least I think I am cynical, sceptical, sardonic about corporate social responsibility global citizenship of a corporate kind but it is better, after all in the lonely hour of a last instance than simply going for the big bucks, isn't it? Or what do you think?
1: Well I think this is what still intrigues me and bothers me and troubles me, Um, and I'll just take the example of Ethos Water as an example. I don't know if Ethos Water is distributed in Europe or not. I know they gained a distribution deal in the United States with PepsiCo, so here they're now distributed not just in Starbucks, but you can buy them in supermarkets, and um, Ethos professes to uh, donate, I think it's five cents of their $1.80 retail price of every bottle towards Water projects in mostly "quote unquote" developing countries, and so on the one hand, there seems to be, you know, it seems to be that there's some altruistic principle or ideal that drives their 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 commodity, their product. And in fact, the CEO himself, Peter Thune, says that if it wasn't for uh, his, his you know his belief in humanity, there wouldn't be an ethos water. On the other hand, they've pledged to donate, I think it's $10 million in grass-to-water projects in their first six years of being in existence, and in that time, they've also made in the hundreds of millions of dollars of profit. So, you know, if, you, if we're doing the arithmetic, it's possible that the world is a better place as a result of places, people like ethos, but let's, let's try to be more than clear about the motivations, the commercial motivations, that underlie the supposed altruistic main principles that guide the, the businesses. That's, that's my my feeling at this point. So I share your cynicism, I'd say.
0: Right. But then that does beg the question, what does Rob want? Right. Do you want the state to do more of this stuff? Do you want NGOs, non-government organizations, third sector entities to do more of this stuff? How is anything beneficial achieved if it all gets pulled apart
1: and criticized as self-interested or... I think that's what bothers me dominating. myself because I agree with you. One of the first things that uh, corporations do is they look to establish partnerships with well-respected humanitarian NGOs because they know that that gives them, you know, the ethos, the humanitarian ethos of the clout that they need to be able to convince the public to mobilize around them to donate funds to their causes and so on. So. I mean, that's the basis for my cynicism. I suppose is that the partnerships aren't purely driven by altruism; they're so. yeah. driven by a need for credibility in the public sphere. Right, right, right. And so, on the one hand, I absolutely agree that you know, in some ways, you can't you can't criticize commerce completely because even if they don't want to or don't mean to, oftentimes they promote causes that are just and that are good for people that keep people alive. Yeah, um, you know, that's the tension, right? Sure. And
0: and you need to think about how these things play out materially rather than look for ideal solutions or
1: ideal answers uh,
0: in both senses of ideal. Yeah, I
1: mean, I'm saying this with a little bit of trepidation because I know you've done a lot of work in this area. You're very interested in this. So in
0: addition to these projects on corporations, you've also edited a book that's coming out shortly. Uh, Tell us about that.
1: August 2012. Right. It seems. Tell us about that. So, Border Rhetorics. It's called Border Rhetorics uh, Citizenship and Identity on the U.S. Mexico Frontier. And this, uh, you know, I guess the project came out of a lot of different interests, but specifically a case study uh, that I published, uh, now it's been three years ago, on a, hmm, how to describe them. There's certainly a conservative, volunteer, quote unquote, patriot volunteer organization called the Minuteman Civil Defense Corps. It's uh, under the umbrella of the Minuteman movement, which is a huge uh, border patrolling movement, uh, immigration patrolling and policing movement in the United States. And uh, at that time, I wasn't really, frankly, very privy to immigration politics, at least not contemporary, in the contemporary context. At the time, I was more interested in the way that space and spatiality, what we might call, or what Deleuze might have called a spatial ontology, guides people's, you know, worldviews. And the worldview of borders seems to be one that is particularly relevant in our society today. Um, And I was interested in sort of muddying up the idea of what a border can be, and trying to understand it through particular kinds of uh, understandings of how space works, and how space includes and excludes simultaneously. And, you know, the construction, the the main epistemology of relationality, and spatiality in the States and in Western culture is one of in and out, here and there, us and them. And uh, you know, borders work not just physically and geopolitically, but they also work psychologically and discursively. Okay. And can it's can really you? a project about teasing all of that out.
0: Can you explain also for folks who may be familiar with those debates but may not be familiar with the history and rhetoric of the Minutemen and specifically the constitutional and textual world? Of militias in United States mythology.
1: Right. So, um, going back to the founding of the United States, the militia was the main law enforcement agency, which was a community body of volunteer citizens who agreed that protecting their borders was worth laying down your life for. And that mythology and that ideology has really, you know, sparked the, the imagination of. I, I think the current incarnation of the civic imaginary and so groups like the Minutemen play on that rhetoric both visually and linguistically in order to try to craft an identity for themselves that harkens back to the great hero you know heroism of the minutemen who, of the 1700s who gladly laid down their lives in name of country and uh, and also national unity as well. So the minute, one of the things that drives the Minutemen organizations, of which there are many, and some of which are quite conflictual and contradictory, ultimately resides in a national unity or sort of a vision of purity that is derived from a patriotic willingness to do what it takes to make sure that the us is maintained and the them is maintained as well.
0: And of course these people are, at least putatively in terms of their origin, straight white male property owners.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Although it's interesting that, like so many other political organizations, there's often people of color that become their spokespeople in the public.
0: Right, nowadays, but in terms of the mythology of the past, and who were available at any moment to come to... In a minute. In a minute, minute, literally, the defense of these interests. And in a sense, the mythology is both that they are outside the state, and hence not subject to any of the anti-governmental ethos of the United States, at the same time as they claim a constitutional protection under the founding documents that govern this country
1: that's right which actually serves as a convenient alibi to be able to partake of both and exploit both um, for you know for the designs of their the organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, this article—where uh, was it published? I'm sorry, where was your article published? Oh, it was in a journal called the Quarterly Journal of Speech.
0: Quarterly uh, Journal of Speech, which has been going almost as long as the Minutemen. Uh, <laughs> it well, it's been going so. a century anyway. It's, it's one of the right. longest-standing scholarly journals in this country. That's right. Certainly
1: in the cultural field. And I'd have to say that I was—I think I was lucky to have the article published at a time when. There was an editor who was quite amenable to not the standard fare that you expect in the Quarterly Journal of Speech, which is mostly still, frankly, you know, um, analyses of speeches, public discourse, my dead white people.
0: You know. Right, the <clears throat> Kenneth Burke right. uh, model, as it were, of um, how to understand the Gettysburg Address, or, as you say, what uh, dead white European origin men once said and we should all try to live by what they really meant.
1: I have to say that I was, in fact, rather surprised that you got that article accepted. accepted,
0: So (coughs) that connected you very much to border discourse. And I'm imagining, too, given what you said about the way that your thinking changed as a consequence of your pedagogy, that the experience of being uh, with a large number, not only of either immigrant or... The recent immigrant families, yeah. in a teaching sense, but also people who are the most excoriated objects of derision on We're the planet. Like the wretched of, of the earth. Like the wretched Phenonian figures uh, within the discourse of these militias.
1: Yeah, in fact, I give my students a lot of credit for the impetus for the project that has become the book now. Um, many of my students are undocumented migrants and intimate me outside of the classroom or even away from the campus, that they're terrified of their futures and in some cases don't even think that they have them. And so um, being interested in in questions, Marxist questions about political economy and the way that that so much influences the way that culture is understood and and lives for us today, it made me start to, to think about Marx's alienation is not being so far away from what all of these people, whether in the labor context or not, are experiencing in their everyday lives, which led me to a concept of alienization. So in that article that I wrote for quarterly journal of speech, I sort of talked about the way that migrants is, as the both visible and invisible members of our society, both in terms of economic and political. and, and as well, social social terms, have become alienized, and it's this process of alienization that really reflects the long-stranding tradition in this country of the national unity that keeps the binarisms of us and them alive.
0: As anybody who has entered the United States, as a citizen of another country knows, all those who cross its borders are, A, subject to its constitutional protections, but B, are literally called aliens.
1: Subject to search at all times. And subject to search. played out in such real ways now in so many states that are following the lead from Arizona. And there are all kinds of contradictions here too, particularly
0: in California and Arizona and Texas, these so-called border states, as it were, or the most important ones in terms of migration from, directly from Mexico or through Mexico originating maybe in Central America. So many people coming here uh, over the, the centuries and of course going the other way. Uh, we are actually the uh, property of, as we were the parts of other states before we were annexed by the U.S., let's not forget. Yes. Uh, but right now, so many contradictory things where people can't vote um, but must pay taxes. So there's lots of taxation without representation. They can get driver's licenses. They can go to school, but can they get aid towards financial aid? Provision of their studies and all sorts of things like this that are very contradictory, conflictual.
1: And constantly objects of contention. So you mentioned the being able to get driver's licenses, but there's a recurring debate and controversy that often surfaces about what languages, the booklets, the testing booklets for the driver's licenses should be offered in, and so there's this, this is the recurring national debate about a national language. Uh, oh, that absolutely, and as
0: well. one of the great things about the Supreme Court is that ever since the early 1920s, it has struck down every state's attempt right. to declare a single language a national language or a state language, which is almost always English, although in the 18th century it might well have been German, because of the protections of the First Amendment, i.e. that the government will not make laws restricting speech.
1: Nevertheless... There is an official language in the United States, Let's be undoubtedly. Frank. Although, you know,
0: when I became a citizen in 2009, it was possible to take the test in a language other than English. Uh, Just as over the last 20 years or so, despite the State Department's attempts to do otherwise, there is protection by the Supremes of the desire to maintain one's citizenship of another country rather than have to give it up, as if there were some pious moment sacralization occurred where you had to wash away the sins of the old world or any other fucking world in order to become a gringo. You know, right? Some of that's gone away.
1: Well, it's again the whole—it's the whole—it's the whole purity. It's the whole discourse of purity, where anything, any little pollutant, can affect that purity, and there's that need to purge it. At the same time, isn't there? Remember when Obama
0: talked about the, the first dog being a mongrel like him? and people very proudly saying, I'm Irish, even though they've never been to Ireland. They can't speak Gaelic. They don't even know where Ireland is. Um, and then say, oh, I'm also Native American, and I'm this and I'm that.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Obviously, this is the competing discourses that make up the civic imaginary, which are based on illusion and the ideals that we hold dear, even though and if we don't practice them in our lives.
0: Yeah. So there is a massive contradiction there, I think, in the. I think we love the of,
1: idea that we have an African American president. Yeah. We love the idea of it, but also it's also the the, the underlying subtext of yeah. so much conservative movement, including within the Republican candidates' discourses right now, to to get him out. And I, mean, the, I think we really know what it's about. There is both the
0: desire change. for the hyphenated Americanism experience, but also the sense that there is a real Americanism. Yeah. So, for example, you should have a first name. You know, Your last name is Tashane, that's okay. Right. Your first name is Robert, not Robert, right. which would not be okay. Right. That's right. Yeah? Or Kwame. Or Kwame. <laughs> right. But you must, your parents must select a British... English first name in order to show that there is this move towards, if you like, a oneness.
1: Yeah, yeah it's so interesting and so true. Yeah.
0: It doesn't matter what your last name is. <laughs> but your first name must be Bill or Bob or something.
1: Yeah, I'd never thought about it.
0: Absolutely. A very
1: big issue, I think.
0: Implicitly and explicitly.
1: So,
0: um... As a consequence of your pedagogic experience, your life experience, and your research, you decided to edit this Border Rhetorics book coming out in August. Tell us a little bit about the volume, the sort of topics and authors that are represented. If anybody asked me about a book I was editing at this juncture, I would go completely blank and have absolutely no clue who any of the people were or what any of the topics are. So I'm talking on a little bit while you quickly yeah.
1: yeah, scratch yourself I mean I'm, I'm really true. quickly entering that space as well. It's in the book is in the production stages, so now I've sort of divested myself absolutely. from the actual well, content. Well let's forget about who who working team. on the mechanics. Let's forget know. about the right <laughs> and that's right.
0: And I want to talk about mechanics in a moment So let's forget about who the people are and just think about what needs to be looked at in a
1: book called Border Rhetorics. Well, it was partly my decision and partly the decision of the publisher that I ended up going with, that that we should keep the project focused. And since I already had a bit of background on US-Mexico immigration politics, and I knew quite a few other scholars in the field of rhetorical studies uh, who were quite invested in this, particular side, I figured that that would be the best way to focus one book and to make it be able to be an edited volume that had some kind of a narrowed enough scope and yet was able to speak to broader topics about borders. Um, So the reason that I picked U.S. Mexico was really out of my, my interests, but also more so the scholars' interests, I'd say, that I wanted to work with. And really what I first did was I I sort of thought about who my dream contributors would be in the book and sort of cold emailed them. I didn't know most of them and was so surprised and people just gladly saying this sounds like a great project, yourself included. You know, I'd love to be a part of it. So it was a bit uh, you know, in terms of who contributed it was uh, it was just basically based on a dream list of people that I knew who had the talent to be able to talk about the issues. But in terms of the issues, I also wanted to make sure that I had scholars that were interested in historical issues, political, co- political economy, citizenship. Um, you know, ontologies, spatial ontologies, and so in some ways it's a bit disheveled. It's not it's not as <laughs> tightly organized as I might have imagined it to be at the beginning of the project. But I think that's okay. The way that it turned out. It's rather eclectic and yet focused at the same time.
0: You now, know. here's a question that I would not have asked three years ago. How are you going to market the book? How am I going to market Yes, how are you going to market the book? It? The reason I say that is that nowadays it's become absolutely vital. It's the first
1: question out of the Naposition editor's you know, conversation, initial conversation.
0: Right. With then, Publishers don't really do it themselves, and this isn't just a matter for academic authors, it's a matter for trade book authors. Yeah. A friend of mine's got a book out with Knopf just to do almost everything. This wasn't the case a few years ago. And and in terms of academia, increasingly the notion is that we must do the work of promotion. So. The reason I I ask is partly to do with that, and partly to do with the fact that we are in Southern California,
1: where these are pregnant questions. It's true. Um, I had to write a pressy about this for the publisher, and sort of came up with what I thought was the standard fare of self-promotion, which is making sure that it gets on listservs, electronic listservs, different kinds of email and mailing lists. I will reluctantly reopen my Facebook page. I'll probably uh, what I would like to do is try to write some sort of editorialist articles that refer to the book for magazines, mostly sort of liberal magazines like Harper's, for instance, and Atlantic. Those are going would be some targets as well. Um, so in terms of self-promotion, it's going to have to come from, as you say, channels that we would have never had to reckon with before, and, and lots of lots of which are electronic-based.
0: What about activism? Activists who. You know, in churches, uh, in other kinds of non government organizations, are committed to, let's say, a more humanitarian, fairer immigration policy. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I don't think it will just me, be me that does that. It will be the other authors, many of whom are activists who, you know, regularly take trips down to the borders and work with human rights organizations on the border. So I think I'll be able to muster some community. Uh-huh in terms of that kind of promotion as well. I would also say that, even though this might sound a bit exploitative, I think my students will help a lot to promote the book. Um, Not necessarily because I'll be assigning it, but because so many of the themes of the book are themes that I work into all of my teaching, all of my pedagogy. It informs not just the content of the classes, but the way that I think about what important aspects of culture need to be talked about Um, and so in some sense I think the students will end up promoting the book as well whether directly or indirectly.
0: Now I wanted to finish up if I could by asking you about mechanics because when I googled you the imagery of you for this I found not only your book but also a picture of you with a VW. Uh, and a long and involved account of the denazification of <laughs> Volkswagen. Oh my. Did you know about this? No. And it sailed to Belgium, an article oh, that actually
1: interviews you. Yes, uh, my my car got a write-up in a magazine a few years ago. I think that's where your picture came from. And this was a very opinionated writer who felt like he knew all about world history and was trying to summarize it in a small article. Yeah, why Belgium is a wonderful place. Right. It was about world. It was a an article about world history that wasn't about world, world history, history at all. So.
0: But tell us about your car because since we, it will partly illustrate this talk, I'd love for people to know about this. Just, some will remember in Woody Allen's 1973 movie Sleeper where he's been asleep for what a quarter of a century at right. some period well, at least. he wakes up yeah. and one of the big gags, sight gag is that he gets into an old Volkswagen which vehicle. has been
1: hidden away in a cave as I remember turns the key and it starts On, right away Right.
0: <laughs> right. mythic capacity of VW to be efficient in that manner But tell us about your car, because I was rather struck, although I couldn't abide the madness of the article in certain
1: ways, (laughs) by the notion of the vehicle that will not die. Yeah, it's the people's car, right? The Volkswagen. And I think that sort of populism has always interested me. But I would be lying if I didn't say that it was also because I was acculturated in a Volkswagen culture through my family who owned nothing but Volkswagens. I slept in the back seat, I hid in the back seat when I was a kid. My dad's Volkswagen and so I'm sure that that has a lot to do with the reason why I'm still interested in it as well but there is some kind of populist strain and I'll have to say that I've got, it's it's considered a vintage car and it's actually considered quite a collectible car. It's an object of interest to other people who are Volkswagen enthusiasts and I've taken it to shows and one of the things that I noticed at Volkswagen car shows is that it's really quite a different population that sees themselves as different because they own the people's car. They, they are very blatant about their anti-snootiness. And, um, oftentimes, uh, the car shows are a reaction to most of the car shows in the United States, which are American cars only, and sometimes if you, if you go to a car show typically in the United States, in many cities, in a Volkswagen, you'll be drummed out of the show. You'll be told that this isn't the place for you. And I find that fascinating that there's even this sort of, you know, bordering division amongst people who are using mechanisms to describe something about their identities and so blatantly willing to, to you know, uh, to profess a nativism or even a racism through their cars as though it wasn't coming from them, right? Because you, do, you don't have an American car. That's why we don't want you. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of
0: these shows, don't we have the biggest car show in the country here in LA each year? Isn't that when Chrysler and General Motors and Ford announce their new. It is, yeah, the LA Car Show, I think it's called, yeah. right? Yeah, it's a really big deal. Yeah, maybe this right. should be something you should write about at some yeah. point.
1: Anyway, what year is your car? What, it's maybe? 1952. It's what they call a split window which was uh, the, the original beetle that had two little half pieces of oval glass in the back window of zero visibility uh, semaphore turn signals on the sides of the car. It's really very prehistoric in some ways, but that's part of the fun of owning it is sort of having to make it an experience a driving experience whether you like it or not, just to get the thing to move and stop.
0: are you? handy as it were i mean competent with engines and so forth
1: uh yes experiment through failure and destruction <laughs> yeah I've, I've i've worked my way and destroyed several Volkswagens to get to the point where i'm pretty confident that i won't destroy this one
0: now. Schumpeterian renewal
1: that's right so how long have you had the vehicle uh it's closing on in 10 years now Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and so this is also my way of very self-reflexively entering into the world of commodities and commodity fetishism and I'm pretty pretty aware and also uh, disturbed by that in some sense. Well, when you talk about nationalism in the car, I'm
0: thinking of the fact that... I don't know if this is true of other dealerships, but in Santa Monica, here in Los Angeles on the west side, there is a Volkswagen dealership, which in its waiting room has quite an array of newspaper and magazine advertisements for VWs from the 60s and 70s. If you've not seen it, I'd urge you to pop in there and just look at it next time you're in that part of the world. Because what's interesting when you look at these ads, and some of them have things like VWs thrown into swimming pools and floating, because right. there was a big campaign, and boats on water, and so on. But some of them had endless people climbing in and climbing out of them, but all these ads, in different ways, had an ironized sense that we're different
1: and we don't care. Yeah, I do do think that Volkswagen, when it first came to the States, which was in the mid-50s, always thought of itself as sort of the outcast, the happy outcast or the proud outcast. Uh, and it worked actually as well in corporate culture because it promoted that ideology of individualism, don't be like everybody else, and yet buy a, a car. You know, so there was undoubtedly a motivation that. this would
0: also be an interesting thing for your work on borders because as you know production of these vehicles in Latin America yeah. continues to this day that's right and for many many years in Mexico in particular they were the face of the taxi you know, there are still quite a lot of Feral or pirate taxis that are
1: Beetles. That's a number of Volkswagen Beetles as taxis.
0: And in Argentina, factories over decades. So very interesting uh, history as far as its place in the market in Latin America and here. And of course, the ideology of the small car um, as opposed to the gigantic. US vehicle. It's so
1: confluent, though, isn't it, with the American ideology of individualism and its power yeah. and realizing the American dream, the little guy working his way up from whatever background, however right. austere, but to be president or whatever. Remaining I mean, one of the things that strikes
0: me is if you look at a, a film that shot on the streets of Los Angeles in the late 70s, very early 80s, the cars are quite small. Uh, go and watch Personal Best again, if you can face it. Robert Towne movie, him. which is his uh, softcore porn fetishization of lesbian sex, basically, but is also interesting in terms of trying to show same-sex love in an athletic context. But Unbelievably fetishistic, even by his standards. I remember. But the thing that I find most interesting about the film is that they keep getting, no matter how tall these athletes are, they keep getting in and out of tiny cars. <laughs> it's classic Carter era. Ah. Put a sweater on if you're cold. Ah. Have a look at it. It's amazing. Okay. And by about 81, even 82, people are not getting into small cars in Los Angeles in Hollywood films. <sighs> There's something to be, to be done there. Anyway, uh, Rob, we've reached the end of our time together. I want to thank you very much for this, and I hope that you'll
1: come back to the pod and talk to us once more about your future adventures. Well, I appreciate the honor of being interviewed by Natalia, and finally getting to put the face with the, the email words, and uh, I would love to come back.
0: Great fun. Thank yeah, you. Thank you.